This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. And now we're going to bring in our uh, chief executive of Nutrisystems, Don Azir. And also uh, joining us on the phone is our Hall of Fame quarterback, Dan Marino. Thank you both for being here. Much appreciated. Uh, Dawn, I just want to begin with you. The meals that Nutrisystems offers to its customers, who makes those meals? Are those meals that are that you make or are they outsourced? We design the meals, so we determine the macronutrient components. But then we have about 30 different vendors that we deal with that create um, the different products that we have. And Dan Marino, what is your favorite meal? Right now, I use a lot of the shakes in the bars. To be honest, we have a we have a new shake that's out. It's a turbo shake for men. Uh, been using that, and um, you know the best part about the whole thing is for men and women. Actually, it's just it makes it simple, right? It's simple. You you get the food in the mail, you get it, and um, you know the pastas, all that, the, you know the shakes, everything. So. That's my favorite meal. Okay. The, the, the reason I was going there with the meals is I'm just curious, and, and maybe, Dawn, you could speak to this, is that in a lot of uh, uh, cases, people are always wondering about the ingredients mm-hmm. and the claims that are made about the ingredients. How do you uh, account for those uh, claims, and what kind of evidence-based uh, science is there that the meals are exactly what they say they sure. are? Sure. So everything we do is scientifically backed, scientifically based. So if we make a clinical claim, it's because there's substantiation behind it. So when we say something like lose um, 15 pounds in one month, seven inches overall, there are supported blind clinical studies that support that. Um, As far as the food goes, we've made a lot of changes over the last couple of years. We've taken out the artificial flavorings, artificial sweeteners, things along those lines to really reflect a lot of the um, trends going on and what customers are looking for. We also have the South Beach Diet brand that we launched last year, a home delivery program, and that really is focused on something that is very on trend right now, which is low sugar with less than 1% of um, the sugar being um, added sugars. Right. I see you've got men's plans, you've got diabetes plans, Mm -hmm. you've got vegetarian plans, and you talk about the South Beach plan. Dan, come on back in. You lost 22 pounds doing this. Tell me what else was involved. And I ask it because I do feel like that there's a trend in terms of dieting, that it's not about fads anymore. It's about exercise, eating right among regular food, Mm -hmm. um, and kind of being smart, getting sleep, drinking water. Tell me, Dan, what was all involved with you losing 22 pounds? Well, first of all, I, I, I had a, fr- a friend of mine that went on the diet and lost. He lost like 45 pounds. And I was like, oh, you know, wow, you know, you lost all this weight. Um, how can I get started? And, I, and I, I started and lost 22 pounds. But you're right. I mean, you know, you want to you, you wanna get on the diet. You want to, you know, eat the right foods. It makes it simple. But also you do want if you can, you know, you want to exercise and, and drink water. And, and that should be a part of all of that. Uh, but the one thing I will tell you, it does make a difference and, and you know, makes a difference in people's lives. It makes them feel better, the whole thing. I mean, from, 
you know, their family and everybody, when you lose weight, you look good, you feel good, you got more energy, you can work out more, all that stuff is just is part of it. So, I mean, you're right. You actually, you hit it right in the, on the head. Yeah, yeah, you need to do that. Don, I want you to come in because I've also spent some time talking with Mindy Grossman over sure. at Weight Watchers and, you know, kind of refiguring brands that have been around for a long mm-hmm. time and that she looks at it too as it kind of more of a lifestyle. How do I make it fit within people's lifestyle so it's not such an onerous thing to do to kind of follow a plan? Right, and I think, um, you know, one of the things that we at Nutrisystem do particularly well is I think we cater well to the busy lifestyle. So if you look at look at our lives over the last 10, 15 years, have gotten a lot more complicated, um, you know, with, with a lot of moms, you know, soccer moms, ballet moms, um, two, two people working in a house. In a house Household. I know no, some soccer dads and ballet dads absolutely. too. <laughs> and not enough time to really, really cook. And so a lot of people, you know, going through those fast food places. And I think with Nutrisystem, what we give is balanced and with South Beach diet as well, you know, macronutrient meals. And I think we've kind of lost, lost um, focus on what a, what a real portion looks like. And, you know, with Nutrisystem, we, we show that through visualization and people then begin to re- relearn with, with those tools. So, so very important. And then, then to have, you know, make sure you're eating calories that matter. So things that are, high protein, high fiber, um, low sugar. Um, and that's really important. And that's kind of how we design, design our foods all around that. What's the churn rate of customers? Um, our average customer stays on three months and, um, it stays on the full program three months. But one of the things that we've done at Nutrisystem is we've opened up many more flexible options. So when I first came to the company, that was all the customers could do. But now what we have is we, we really focus on the customer journey. And as they go through maintenance and transition, or I was talking to one of the people here earlier, and they're saying that him and his wife are on it, and his snacks always disappear. I'm like, your kids are eating them, right? So um, you know we have all these a la carte options that people can also do once they lose the weight and they move into maintenance mode. But and you, but you said three months. Our average customer stays on three months. Now, if you have to lose more more weight, obviously, they stay on longer. But what we find also, because for many people, weight loss is a lifelong struggle. Right. So we find that people come back. So a lot of our customers come back, and that word of mouth, that recommendation is really important. Thank you very much for being with us. Much appreciated, uh, Dawn Zier, Chief Executive, Nutrisystem. And our thanks also to uh, Thank Hall you. of Fame quarterback, Dan Marino. Thank you. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets along with Carol Masser. I'm Pim Fox in for Corey Johnson. Monthly jobs report from the government. Always a closely watched report. This time around, U.S. payroll gains slowing by more than forecast in December. Wages, though, picking up slightly and the jobless rate holding at the lowest level since 2000, adding to signs of a full employment economy. Here with what he sees when it comes to today's employment data. Chris Liu back with us. He is senior fellow, University of Virginia Miller Center, former deputy secretary of labor under President Obama, joining us on the phone from Virginia. Chris, nice to have you here with us. Uh, Pim and myself, what do you see when you look at today's data? Should we be a little disappointed uh, that payroll gains slowed by a little bit more than uh, what economists were forecasting? Well, I, look, I, 148,000 is is good. It's a solid month, and certainly it's more than, than uh, the number of people, um, you know, the population growth in this country. I think the challenge is the expectations that the president has set. Um, you know, when you focus on the stock market gains, that probably creates a little bit of, you know, irrational exuberance about where the jobs should be uh, and what the economy is. I think this is probably a better reflection of where the economy is. Uh, We are continuing to grow. Uh, Wages are not growing where they should be. Uh, Labor force participation has basically been flat. So you're really not bringing new people into the job market right now. And the challenge you have right now is that 4.1% 
uh, unemployment, you would expect to see wages growing at a much faster rate, and they're really not. Um, and I think so for most people, this is a good report, but it's not making a, a marketable difference in most people's lives. So you don't think that the tight labor market in specific cities is having an effect on how much companies have to pay in order to retain workers? Well, no, I think that's right, and there's been some interesting stuff that's come out on that this week. I think the challenge is we, in this country right now, we kind of have the haves and the have-nots. Um, major metropolitan areas, suburban areas are doing quite well. Uh, but to a lot of the disaffected people in this country, those Sanders-Trump voters, this economic recovery has really left many of them behind. And, you know, one of the numbers that I looked at here was the retail trade numbers. And overall, um, it, for the year, um, we are down 67,000 uh, retail jobs. Um, and, you know, in a lot of uh, rural areas in this country, the manufacturing jobs left and the people transitioned into retail. Those jobs are now disappearing. So this, again... This, Chris, let me just jump in for a second, because we were talking with um, Josh Wright yesterday uh, or earlier in the week at iSIMS, and we were talking about the data and whether or not it clearly represents kind of what's going on in the labor market. And he said what's interesting, though, in terms of the government data that take retail, for instance, you know, there might be jobs in warehousing where, you know, it's moved from retail storefronts into warehousing as more things go online. And that warehousing data doesn't necessarily show up in the retail data. So we might not be seeing things so clearly. Right. I think that's exactly. I mean, there is a category of warehousing, transportation jobs. Those were basically flat for the month. But I think what you're starting to see is a shift of jobs in the economy. Um, so in certain areas, people are doing incredibly well, but there's still way too many people that have been left behind in this country. I just Can you just expand on that a little bit, this idea? I mean, because I, I keep hearing this this kind of term, you know, many people being left behind. And 4.1% unemployment, a 2.5% wage increase. And I was just looking, for example, in places like Minneapolis or even in Denver or Fort Myers, you have unemployment rates that are near or even below 3%. And you're finding that businesses in those specific areas have to pay more, and in some cases have to pay bonuses in order to get the workers they want. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm in Virginia right now. Northern Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C., is booming right now. Uh, but if you go down to southwest Virginia, you can't find a job. And so it, it is, again, certain places are doing very well, and, 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 and that's the good news part of this. But there are too many places where we haven't figured out how to bring jobs back, where how you bring back those good construction, manufacturing jobs. Um, so people are kind of – companies that are relocating are all locating to places like Minneapolis and Denver because that's where their uh, executives, that's where their workers want to be. It is hard to get a, a clear picture of what's going on in the labor economy, right? Because you get these statistics, Chris, that come out, and they say things look like we're you know, pretty much close to full employment. And yet I know of stories of people who've lost jobs who are, have great skills but can't find a job. Uh, we do talk about these pockets around the country that either aren't, you know, they don't have the right skills, and so they're not being employed. It's, it's kind of weird, yeah, you know, there's there, there's the glass half full and there's the glass half empty. I mean, on the glass half empty, one of the nagging problems has been labor force participation, which has been hovering in the 62 to 63 percent range, really, for the last, you know, five to ten years. Um, so there's a lot of people that are sitting on the sidelines that haven't come back into the job market. Now, that may be because they don't have the skills needed to compete for the jobs of the 21st century. It may also be because the wages aren't high enough to entice them back in. Uh, but you're right. You see in metropolitan areas incredibly low unemployment rates. Uh, wages are growing. And then you see a lot of other places where there's not a job to be found right now. 
But at the same time, you have 18 states and I think it's something like two dozen municipalities that have uh, mandated increased minimum wages. Right. And again, I think that in many ways is the, the thing that will ultimately lift wages up. It's not this, these one-off $1,000 bonuses that companies are giving uh, after the passage of the tax cut. I think it's, frankly, those are having a greater uh, leveling impact. I think, you know, what this new Department of Labor does with the overtime rule, it's the expansion of paid leave that will ultimately get people off the sidelines and really move them into a much better economic situation. Can I ask you, is the Phillips curve, is it kind of broken? Um, you know, I don't know if it's broken, but I think certainly the economy has shifted. And I, you know, again, when people, for instance, talk about we're, we're close to uh, full employment, I don't really know what that is anymore. I mean, particularly in a, in a climate when you've got 38 percent of people who are not part of the labor force. And again, the demographics of this country are different. Yeah. And so I think we've continued to sort of rewrite what the normal rules of uh, of, of not only the Phillips curve, of economics in terms of wage growth. And I think uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens the rest of this year. And, of course, the Phillips curve, the relationship between unemployment and inflation, typically with uh, low unemployment, you see higher inflation start to creep in because companies have to pay more for all things along the curve, if you will, in terms of putting out goods and services, and that includes paying up for workers, but we kind of haven't seen that. Chris Liu, Senior Fellow, University of Virginia Miller Center, former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama, joining us on the phone from Virginia. This is Bloomberg. Let's talk a little bit about deals in the venture capital world. VC investors raised a record amount of money to invest in healthcare startups and put more of that money to work than ever before, pouring an estimated $15.5 billion into fledgling healthcare companies. I want to talk, though, a little bit more broadly about what we might expect in VC in 2018. Maybe it's more healthcare investments. Ajay Argawal knows a little bit about this. Partner and Managing Director at Bain Capital Ventures. He joins us on the phone from Palo Alto, California. Ajay, nice to have you here. Healthcare was a big area. Uh, it wasn't necessarily some, you know, wow, gee whiz kind of tech companies, but it was healthcare that got a lot of VC money last year. What about this year? What are you seeing already? Well, uh, first of all, Carol, great to be here. And, um, you know, I think healthcare will continue to be a, uh, a very attractive sector given how much of the GDP it is, how much focus there is on cost reduction, improving care, and, um, and, and how much consumers now with personal devices are managing and monitoring their health. I do think, however, as you think about 2018, another trend that we're going to see is the fact that the entire physical world is becoming digital. And as you think about autonomous cars, autonomous trucks, you think about factory floors, machines, everything is going to have a sensor on it. And those sensors are going to produce information about location, about uh, speed, about quality, and that information is going to be used to change how business is done across a lot of sectors that historically have not yet seen the impact of technology. And, and while you've seen healthcare, which I think has been a laggard, now see the benefits of all this venture investment. You're going to now see this across the physical world. I'm not going to talk about health care because uh, there's something more prosaic, and that could be things like ketchup. And uh, you've got a portfolio. One of your portfolio companies uh, is a company called Four Kites. And I wonder if you could just give us an example of how Four Kites is part of this smart trucking industry when it comes to Kraft Heinz. 
Well, the, the beauty of four kites is, is they provide craft with visibility into where all their trucks are. These trucks are all outfitted with GPS systems. They send out signals as to where they are. And Forkites brings all that information together in a single dashboard that the executive team at Kraft can use to determine, is a truck running late? Is there a delay? Is the temperature in the truck uh, the appropriate temperature for whatever perishables we might be shipping? Do we have to let Walmart know that our truck is going to be six hours late so they don't find us? Do we need to send another truck because one truck broke down and that shelf is going to be sitting empty if we don't get another truck out there? And so the impact for Kraft is knowing where their stuff is, improving on-time performance, reducing stockouts, and improving the overall speed and visibility in the supply chain. And again, it all starts with the fact that these sensors have now gotten low cost enough that each of these trucks is instrumented with a temperature sensor with a location sensor. And Forkites is a software company that brings that information together for these large shippers around the world. Ajay, how does something like Amazon and their moves, how does it factor in? Because it looks like you guys, too, have an investment in Jet.com, which, of course, was picked up by Walmart. Well, you know, I think what's happening is that Amazon is now touching almost every major part of the economy. They started in books. They've expanded across retail. They're now in software infrastructure with AWS. They're moving into the consumer world with Alexa. And I think what they have done is is really reset the playing field in terms of what consumers expect. Consumers and now those same consumers sitting inside a business are expecting that they press a button and whatever they need is showing up the next day or the same day for low cost or no cost. And what that means is that same consumer, when they're sitting inside their business saying, hey, this machine just broke. I need a piece of inventory to fix it. I want to be able to press a button and have it show up the same day. Hmm. I don't want to have to fill out 10 pieces of paper and requisition you know, 40 forms and wait three weeks in order to get this machine up and running. And so you're seeing this concept called the Amazon effect where they've changed what people expect when it comes to speed and convenience, and that's affecting every single sector of the economy. And we've benefited from funding a number of great founders and entrepreneurs that are trying to deliver an Amazon-like experience to different parts of the economy. And it's it's a huge trend, and we're going to see that continue. One company that I know that you uh, helped foster and is now public, it's called SendGrid, uh, went public just at the beginning of, or actually the middle of November. Tell, tell people just quickly about SendGrid and why that may be a poster child for companies we deal with, but we don't necessarily know that they exist. Yeah, SendGrid is, is the leading provider of email infrastructure. And essentially, every time an email is sent, uh, and that could be an email from your favorite brand, it could be an email from one of your favorite mobile services, that email gets routed through an entire infrastructure ultimately to get to your inbox. And SendGrid today is, is the leader, the market share leader right. in providing that email infrastructure. So even though you might never see SendGrid 
billions and billions of emails are sent uh, a year via SendGrid's infrastructure, and uh, they've uh, continued to grow and thrive based on the quality of their solution. Right, up another 10% already here in 2018. Ajay Argawal, he is Partner and Managing Director at Bain Capital Ventures. Check out uh, their website for more of their investments. He's joining us on the phone from Palo Alto, California. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, but you let me drive. Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, the drive to the close with Chris Zaccarelli, Chief Investment Officer of Independent Advisor Alliance, helping to manage more than $2.5 billion based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Chris, a pleasure. I want to ask you about cash because I've read something uh, you put out that says that any significant pullback I'd use as an opportunity to buy you can't buy unless you have money. So how much cash do you have set aside for that moment? Well, to be honest, you know, with our, within our portfolios, we have very little cash. We're mostly fully invested ac- across, uh, across all of our portfolios. Let's call it maybe 2 to 4% at most um, cash positions. That being said, for those people who are looking to get into the market who have been ho- either holding back or who have, who have new money um, to put to invest, that's really what we're talking about. So what would you be suggesting they do? When do they wait for a pullback? I mean, we've got stocks up 2.5% this week. The NASDAQ is up nearly 3.5% this week. Yeah, the markets are uh, seem to be on a tear. I mean, they're, they're really... Uh, Dow is up more than 200 points off. right now. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the markets are really uh, picking up where they left off at the end of last year. Um, and so that's the tough part. And you know, as we talk to clients, we say, listen, if you, uh, you know, you can't necessarily wait for a pullback. And it's, it's a tough discussion because a lot of people who have been sitting on the sidelines even for a couple of years and are only now starting to get in, in interested in getting into the market, for those people, you really have to talk about dollar cost investing and just, you know, putting your money in a little bit at a time over the next couple of months. If you do get a pullback in the middle of that dollar cost investment plan, that's when I'd put it all to work, and I wouldn't necessarily wait, um, you know, to, to to dollar cost average at that point. But unfortunately, there's there's really no uh, there's no good answer to the problem. If the market goes in a straight up in a straight line the way it has uh, last year, you're, it's really tough to sit on the sidelines and watch it. I don't understand. You know, Pip and I were talking about this earlier, um, Chris. Looking at fund flows, if you will, investors poured the most money in 13 weeks into bond funds at the end of last year, taking money from stocks. This is uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, putting out some research note and citing some data. Uh, Overall, investors added $9.2 billion to bond funds, withdrew $4.5 billion from equities. Um, I don't understand. Uh, If investors are doing that, are they really that upbeat about what's to come and sitting on the sidelines kind of waiting to just put even more? more into stocks. I don't know. It doesn't make it doesn't seem logical to me based on the data we're seeing. No, it, 
No, it's definitely a contradiction, and I, and I think you've really gotten to the heart of the matter. I'd point to two stories that I saw in the Wall Street Journal just today. You've got the one cover story where they're talking about Dow 25,000, and it's moved up those 1,000 points, the quickest you've ever seen. Um, now, of course, you have to read farther into the article where they point out, well, of course, from 24,000 to 25,000 is right. a little bit more than a 4% return versus you know 9,000 to 10,000 or 10,000 to 11,000, which is 10%. But the second article, I think, it maybe answers that question, and it talks about how retail investors have largely shunned the rally. And they talk about both young investors who um, saw the financial crisis, what it did to their parents, and they've just avoided stocks from the, from the get-go. And even those people who are approaching retirement who still feel those scars of 2000, 2008, and they're, they're becoming a lot more uh, conservative. So I almost wonder if you're seeing some of those retail investors um, who, are, who are approaching retirement who are maybe the ones who are pulling some of, the, some of that equity money out and putting it into fixed income. But keep in mind, the institutional market, completely separate, obviously, from all, the, from all those retail clients. Retail clients play a part through you know, 401ks and through mutual fund flows. But those, those true institutional investors, um, your sovereign wealth funds, your, uh, you know, your large asset managers, even your, your pension plans and endowments, I believe they've been allocating more to equities um, as we go along. 2018 may be a time when they start to dial back risk, but you know clearly uh, supply and demand is at work, and, and equities keep moving higher. Chris, what happens in the institutional world if you have a money manager who at the end of January has not performed as well as the S&P 500? Dare I say we're a 2.5% increase just this week. Then you're behind the eight ball, and— You've got to make that up, what, in the first quarter? Because if you don't make it up in the first quarter, it just gets more and more difficult as the year goes on. I think you're right. You know, and, and when they use that term melt up, that's exactly what they're talking about. It's it's a combination of a fear of missing out from, from retail, but also on the professional side. You, you know, people are, are really uh, trying to decide how do they start to exercise a little bit more caution as valuations become more and more stretched. But on the other hand, if they lag too far from their index, if you're a large cap uh, U.S. equity fund, S&P 500 would be your index, or, you know, looking at the Russell 2000 for those small cap funds, et cetera. That's the real challenge. And so I think as you look back uh, over the last nine years and you're looking at all that flow into passive, and that's what I really think is happening, is you've just seen what's worked well in the past has been passive investing. And frankly, uh, you know, when the Fed prints $4 trillion and a rising tide lifts all votes, of course passive is going to do really well. If active is going to outperform, and, and throughout history, it, there's varying degrees of success of that, it's going to have to be when we get some type of pullback, when we get some type of downturn. Uh, when we're off to the races, it's very difficult to be an active investor and, and keep up, and I, and I think that's the heart of the matter. In the meantime, you're saying, as Pim started this off, you know, that any pullbacks is an opportunity to get into the market. You don't see a recession maybe one to three years off at this point. So the fundamentals, when you look at this market, market, when you look at this economy, this says things are okay. Just got about 30 seconds here. Sure. And I think that's an important distinction. I think the bull market continues to run until we get to, to that next recession. It's, it's a pullback that can happen at any time. So you can get a 10%, 8%, 12% pullback just because valuations are stretched, something scares the market. 
as an investor, I'm going to stay invested all the way through until we get to the next recession. And I and I don't see any signs of recession, at least over the next six months, probably a year. I put one to three years in my notes just because we don't know if this will continue because it has for so long. But I really do think if you watch for that inverted yield curve, that's right. one of the signs of potentially a recession. And that's what you need to be looking for. So that's kind of the dichotomy between watching out for pullbacks, which there's Got nothing it. you can really do to predict it, and staying fully invested. Chris Saccarelli, thank you so much. Chief Investment Officer at Independent. Independent Advisor Alliance joining us on the phone from Charlotte. One bad apple don't spoil a whole bunch, girl. Oh, give it one more touch. Well, it might not spoil the whole bunch, but it might cost you less to buy one of their batteries. If you have a phone from iPhone, uh, from uh, Apple, have an iPhone from Apple that uh, is using an older battery. Mark Gurman is our technology reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins us from our 960 studio in San Francisco and can be followed at Mark Gurman on Twitter, of course. Mark, uh, go ahead. Give us the uh, the short version of the Apple uh, story today because I want to get to these new augmented reality glasses from Amazon. All right, sure. Hey, uh, Pim and Carol. So a few things going on with Apple this week. One is the battery situation where Apple admitted to throttling, basically slowing down older iPhones in a sense to make sure their batteries last longer. Now, instead of paying 80 bucks, you'll be able to pay 30 bucks for a new battery from the Apple Store. You swap the new battery in, they do it for you. It goes back up to its uh, original faster speeds. The other story is the chip situation with Intel and ARM and AMD involved, where the chips are having a security flaw that Apple had to release software updates to plug. Uh, now let's jump into AR glasses. Wait, 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 wait. hold on a sec. Okay. So, are we? Is everything okay? Because I feel like you know, Mark Gurman, that this story has come out. And it's like, oh my God, all these chips are affected. But you know, we're okay. We've taken care of it. Is that the? Is that it? <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll tell you, we're okay until we're not okay, right? Mm. So these exploits are there. Apple's exposed. Intel's exposed. Everyone is exposed, right? But it's only theoretically a problem until the problem arises. Until a hacker or someone exploits it. I think it's going to be a cat and mouse game uh, catching all these exploits as, as they come out to take advantage of, of these holes in the, the security architecture of the chips and you know we'll bring the latest updates if we if we see any problems arise and I'm sure as problems come up apple intel and microsoft and google and everyone else will start squashing them all right, let's talk about glasses. Pim's really excited about this, you can tell. Well, I know yeah. that you you know, you know, got your bags packed. You're ready to go to uh, the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. And uh, I just thought it was interesting because these glasses from uh, Amazon, they're actually made by a company in Rochester, New York. That's right. And first of all, Pim, thank you for reminding me. I, I do need to pack. I'll probably wait till. I don't know. Well, you can morning. buy it all at McLaren Airport. I mean, who knows? I'm sure that you'll Just, be waiting in lines long enough to buy everything. Yeah. Um, so back to these glasses. So this is part of the Alexa developer program, which if you're familiar with Sonos, popular yes. speaker maker. So they came out with a version of their speaker a few months ago, I believe in October, that had Alexa built in. So you could say, Alexa, what's the weather? Do this and that from the speaker. Now there's another big company. There's a public company called Vuzix, like you said, Pim, based in Rochester, New York. And they are coming out with smart glasses uh, called the Blade. They are coming out by the second quarter for about a grand uh, this year in 2018. And what they're going to show for the first time is that these glasses will hook into Amazon Alexa service. So you can have AR glasses. You can say anything to Alexa. And about 90% of the functionality, we're told, from the Echo Show, so that's the Echo with a screen, will actually work in these glasses. So it's basically like getting an Echo on your face. It's quite neat in practice. 
Have you tried it? No, but I am definitely going to okay. get a pair next week in Las Vegas and definitely report back to you guys about uh, how it went. Mark, what's the expected price on something like this? I mean, is this really going to have mass market appeal? So at the launch, at the get-go, I don't think it's going to have mass market appeal to be around $1,000. Over time, the company says they want to get these down to 500 bucks. But obviously, Apple, Google, Amazon, they're going to get into the market with their own competition. This is where the industry is going. This is the new wave of technology. And those guys will have to bring the price down to a few hundred bucks if they want to take it truly mainstream. Now, the company Vuzix, I understand it's, what, 30% owned by Intel? Um, I think they have an investment uh, by Intel in their business. Obviously, Intel does a lot on the VR side as well. Okay. And they produce not only these glasses for Amazon, but they produce augmented reality glasses for a variety of industrial applications. Is this the kind of thing we're going to see people in warehouses and in factories are going to be walking around with these augmented reality uh, visual aids that are going to really kind of remake the way people work. Yeah, you got it, Pim. I mean, you can imagine a mechanic wearing them while fixing an airplane and getting instructions on how to how to do that. You can imagine a TV producer who's trying to, you know, arrange the set, getting information about where people need to sit, which guests are next, right, in their field of view. So the industrial, like you said, and enterprise applications for smart glasses are pretty endless. It's just about bringing them to consumers because that's where the true money is at, making these have mainstream appeal. And I think this is going to be the start of that. Alexa is a very consumer-grade piece of software. It's a really tightly integrated voice ecosystem and operating system, but it's very much geared towards what's the weather. Call mom, text dad, you know, what's what, what's going on on Twitter and Facebook? What has Trump said today, right? So I think those are the types of applications that are going to move this toward more of a mainstream product line. Hey, Mark, how many people have signed up for something like Alexa at this point? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. So Amazon is very rare in terms of public companies in the sense that they don't really reveal numbers of people using their devices. But Mm. the most we're able to get out of them is from surveys and analyst reports, which indicate that the majority of the smart speaker uh, products on the market are ones running Alexa. So Amazon is really at the top sort of of this kingdom of voice-enabled services. We'll see how Apple fares when it gets into the smart speaker market with the HomePod uh, sometime in the first half of this year. Uh, but until every big product maker is in the game, we won't really have a good you know, hold on who is going to be at the top of this food chain for the coming years. Interesting story. Thank you very much. Have yeah. a great time at the Consumer Electronics Show. You, you, you going to buy anything there? You interested in anything specific? Give you 10 seconds. <laughs> I'm not going to buy anything. I'll oh. be too focused on coverage. But if I do, I'll let you know. All hey, right. listen, and you told us, I think, right, that CES is uh, back in fashion again, right? Yeah, we called this a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> shares of Vuzix. By the way, shares yeah. of Vuzix, the company that makes yeah. these augmented reality glasses, up 18.5% today. This company at CES, apparently, Mark told us uh, earlier in the week, is like booked solid at CES. Everybody wants to talk to them. Symbol V-U-Z-I, if you're looking. Good stuff. I'm looking. I'm always looking. So is Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg Radio. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. 
Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for a look at some of your winners and losers, movers and shakers on this Friday afternoon. I'm Carol Masser along with Pim Fox. Let's start with the S&P 500. I like to do that. 360 names in the index higher today, 144 lower, one unchanged. Let's talk about electronic arts. The number three gainer in the S&P 500 today, stock up 4.85% to $112.39 a share, now up 7% so far this year, and that's on the back of a 33% gain in 2017. What happened? Well, electronic arts holder Melvin Capital Management reporting it owned about 15.9 million shares as of January 5, uh, January 5th, uh, so a, a 5% apparently passive stake. The stake includes about 10.1 million shares subject to call options. Uh, this is in, in an SEC uh, filing. So just interesting to see uh, kind of the, I guess, amount of holding, if you will, in the stock. And that gave some more momentum uh, in today's session, Pim. Are you familiar with uh, Ripple, right? Ripple is another one of these cryptocurrencies. Yes. Well, uh, there's a uh, connection between Western Union and Ripple. Shares of Western Union up nearly 6%. Now, this comes after unconfirmed reports said that Western Union plans to use Ripple's XRP cryptocurrency in its blockchain technology for money transfers. Uh, the interesting thing there is that RippleNews.tech has gone offline, and the news hmm. was reported around 3 uh, p.m. Uh, Eastern today. And then shortly after that, the price of XRP, the cryptocurrency, that jumped 20%, and Western Union stock jumped, and not 20%, but at least closed almost 6% higher. So we're going to be watching that. Uh, a spokesperson for Ripple declined to comment, saying the company can't comment on rumors or speculation. But once again, shares of Western Union up nearly 6% today. And for a moment, I thought you were talking about Ripple Wine, but not... No uh, luck. No luck. Hey, let's talk about CVS. Um, the fourth biggest gainer right after Electronic Arts in the S&P 500. CVS shares up 4.4%. CVS Health was raised to overweight from equal weight at uh, Morgan Stanley, as the analyst over there, Ricky Goldwasser, says the purchase of Aetna, quote, changes the narrative and will allow CVS to return to its historical growth profile. Expects two-phase trajectory after the deal closes, starting with accelerating EBIT growth, E-B-I-T growth, from Synergies and new Aetna members in 2019-2020. Starting in 2021, CVS will play a pivotal role in shaping a new healthcare delivery model. So blah, blah, blah. Upbeat, if you will, <laughs> about the stock. And so, again, the number four gainer in the S&P 500. Not blah, blah, blah. I just meant there's more there. And, you know. I, I, no, we got that. <laughs> that yeah. Footnotes. Not. Yes, indeed. Uh, let me tell you about the shares of Apple, up yes. a little bit more than 1% today. This comes even though the company said that all Mac computers and iOS devices, such as iPhones and iPads, they are affected by the chip security flaw that uh, was uh, revealed this week, the chip security flaw revealed by mm -hmm. Intel uh, and um this is not hurting the shares of Apple stock up more than 1% today. They're saying that they have recent software updates for all of the devices. And it includes not only, you know, your iPod, your Macs on, but also Apple TV, the set-top box. So um, that vulnerability 
is something that they're working on, shares of Apple up 1%. Yeah, and we're going to talk to uh, Mark Gurman uh, about that uh, a little bit later on, so we'll get a little bit more on his take and, and what we're hearing on that front. Uh, Tiffany, let me just mention, Tiffany, there was a story on the Bloomberg today uh, that talked about Tiffany. Uh, shares down about two-tenths of a percent, closing at 106.57. Stock uh, gained about 34% last year, so it's quite a run. Our story says it looks like Tiffany & Company may have given holiday shoppers just the sort of gifts they were prowling for, and that is a sterling silver ice cream scoop or maybe a classy ruler. About Apparently both of those products are part of the company's uh, recently introduced Everyday Objects collection priced at $375 and $450 respectively, uh, currently displayed as sold out online. I wonder if you could use the ruler to get the ice cream out of the carton. Uh, that way you save money. <laughs> and get a ruler and an ice and cream an scoop ice cream all scoop at once. together. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. All right, everybody. All right. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. All right. It is time to do the volatility index report. The VIX moving lower today. It was down about four-tenths of a percent, losing 0.03, settling at 9.18. This is Bloomberg. All right. Dave, you're up. Uh, hi. Uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door. It's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Mr. Wilson. Dave Wilson back in town, back in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York City. Your stock of the day, Barnes & Noble. That's right. You want to talk about a company that's been hurt by Amazon.com? Focus on Barnes & Noble. I mean, the bookstore chain's been competing with Amazon since the mid-1990s when they started out as an online bookseller. And the last few years have just been difficult. Data compiled by Bloomberg shows Barnes & Noble sales have fallen every quarter for the past three and a half years. More often than not, the company has posted losses as well. It's definitely weighed on the Barnes & Noble shares, which trade under the ticker BKS. Barnes & Noble sales for this past holiday season came out late yesterday, and they brought more disappointment. Sales at locations opened more than a year, or otherwise known as same-store sales, dropped 6.4%. Sales on the company's websites slid 4.5%. And Barnes & Noble expects more of the same this year. The company sees same-store sales falling by a percentage in the mid-single digits. And you put that all together, the company's shares fell almost 14% on the day. They closed at their lowest price in 22 years. You know, they're actually trading, once you adjust for the fact that they got rid of their uh, college textbook business a couple of years ago via spinoff, they are trading below the price at mm. which the company went public. Makes me sad. I don't know. I love bookstores. Leonard Riggio still owns more than 11.5% of Barnes & Noble. Definitely a different time for that company. All right, Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg Stocks columnist. Thank you for that one. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.